You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our story on Henry the Navigator. I have two notes to start today. First, I am hosting a session at an online history podcast event on Saturday, April 24th, called the Intelligent Speech Conference. There are a lot of really great people involved, most of them independent podcast producers. My topic is titled, Improvise, Adapt, Overcome, Explorers Back from the Brink. It should be fun. The cost of the conference is $30, but if you put in the code EXPLORERS, you'll get 10% off the cost of admission. Go to intelligencespeechconference.com for a list of all the sessions and speakers. Second note, I will talk about a lot of places today, most of them on the west coast of Africa. I put a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com, identifying all these locations. There's also a link to a map in the show notes. That is it for notes. Let's rock and roll with part two of Henry the Navigator. Last time, we detailed the early years of Henry's life, including the Portuguese victory at Ceuta in Morocco in 1415, as well as his endeavors poking around the west coast of Africa, which led to the discovery of the Madeira Islands and the Azores. By the 1420s, there was, outside of the king, probably no more influential or powerful man in Portugal than Henry. Now, the discovery of the Azores and Madeira Islands were great for Henry, but what he really wanted to do was push down the African coast. His goal was to get to the sub-Saharan region, where he could then do an end run on the caravan trade routes that crossed the North African desert. If he could do this, he would have a direct line to all sorts of valuables, including gold. The big issue facing Henry was that there was no reliable information about what lay beyond Cape Bojador, which is located in what is today Western Sahara. Cape Bojador was the big scary for mariners of the time. To try to go past it meant disaster. Up until around 1430, Henry would back about a dozen or so expeditions down the African coast, but none were able to pass Cape Bojador. And then, in 1433, there was a major event in Portugal that would greatly affect Henry, and that was the death of his father, King John. 
John would die of the plague at the age of 76, his eldest surviving son, Duarte, or Edward, taking the crown. The new king would grant Henry all profits from trade with the lands to the south of Cape Bojador. This had not always been the case in past explorations. This spurred Henry to increase his efforts to get past the Cape and explore further south. In 1433, Henry would send Gilles Ennis on yet another expedition. Ennis was a squire in Henry's household. He was not a sailor, but he was Henry's loyal man. Ennis would sail first to the Madeira Islands and then to the Canaries. It is believed that he had a single ship. We don't know exactly what kind of vessel he had. The best guess is that it was a typical small cargo bark, maybe 30 tons, with a single square sail. From the Canaries, Ennis would head toward the African coast and Cape Bojador. At Cape Bojador, Ennis and the crew were greeted by a fearsome sight. The waters and winds were violent. Water spouts shot out of the sea, and the men saw steam rise off the ocean surface, and the waters appeared to boil. The crew balked at going forward. Ennis would order the ship to turn around. So what was going on? What was so darn scary about Cape Bojador? Well, let me explain. First, there was the wind. At Cape Bojador, the winds change suddenly and blow strongly from the northeast. Second, the cape and the surrounding coast extend into the ocean in the form of an underwater reef. The folks at Wikipedia say this about the cape, quote, When the waves break after crashing into unseen gullies, the water spouts furiously into high foamy clouds that look like steam, even on calm days. End quote. Third, the area is teeming with fish, and during the feeding times of larger fish, great schools of sardines will rise to the surface, and the sea appears to bubble violently, as if boiling. Fourth, the waters around the cape are shallow, meaning those who get too close could get their hulls ripped apart by a reef or driven onto the rocks. All of these things converge to give off this crazy vibe. Boiling, swirling waters, steam rising off the ocean surface, water shooting into the air, and sudden, unpredictable winds. Add to this scene the oppressive, desolate-looking Sahara Desert, and the cape's foreboding reputation was understandable. So, Gio Ennis would return to Portugal, where he told a disappointed Henry his tale. Wanting to get back into the good graces of his lord, Ennis asked Henry if he could make another attempt. The result was a follow-up expedition in 1434. Some sources suggest that Ennis had a different ship for this journey. This was probably a barkentine, or schooner bark. It would have had three masts. No matter, Ennis would head back to Cape Bojador, determined to round the cape or die in the attempt. How exactly Ennis convinced his crew to sail beyond the Cape is not really known, but he would do it, and before long, the ship would find itself in calm seas. It had taken Henry about 15 expeditions and almost two decades, but Portugal had successfully passed the legendary Cape Bojador. In a lot of ways, this was as much a psychological breakthrough as a physical one. Ennis would sail a ways down the African coast and eventually land. Again, this was the Sahara, so there really wasn't much of anything to see. There were no people and little vegetation. The only living thing of note that Ennis found was a rose, which he called St. Mary's Rose. Ennis would collect some of the roses to bring back to Portugal as proof that he had sailed past the Cape. He would then head home, and back in Portugal, Henry was no doubt thrilled at the news. The next year, Ennis would again sail down the African coast, this time with two ships, the second vessel under the command of Alfonso Gonçalves Badea. Badea's ship was a new deep-hauled, two-masted sail and oar-powered vessel, larger than Ennis's Barca. The new ship was said to be designed for coastal exploration and may have had a Latin sail. The two ships would push about 150 miles, or 250 kilometers, past Cape Bojador, reaching Garnet Bay. 
They would find the coast deserted, but as they got further south, they reported signs of life, including the footprints of men and camels. The ships would return to Portugal, where the news was greeted with optimism by Henry and his advisors. The next year, 1436, Baldeo would be sent out again, and he would push another 125 miles past the previous year's endpoint, reaching as far as Cabo Barbas, about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, north of the modern-day Western Sahara-Mauritania border. He would also cross the Tropic of Cancer at this time. Along the way, the ship would hunt monk seals, collecting a cargo of thousands of seal pelts. The expedition did sight other humans, but attempts to capture one of them were met with failure. And so Henry's latest expedition would return to Portugal, these endeavors showing promise for the prince, but little in the way of profit. Now, I do want to talk about one discovery that was made by Portuguese mariners around this time. And I use the term discovery a bit loosely, because this is not a place we are talking about. And this discovery is not something that was suddenly found, but something that emerges over the course of decades. And this is the Volta do Mar, which is Portuguese for turn of the sea. Let me explain. The Volta do Mar is a navigational technique discovered and perfected by Portuguese mariners in the 1400s. It is the phenomenon of a great wind circle, the North Atlantic Gyre. What this means is that the Portuguese figured out that the ocean currents and winds operated in a predictable circular fashion. For our story, the Canary Current flows southwest from Portugal, down the African coast, and toward the Canary Islands. The natural flow takes you even further southwest, and eventually towards the Caribbean, this flow, from the Canaries and across the Atlantic, is called the Northeast Trades. Now, this seems bad. No one wants to get swept out into the Atlantic Ocean hundreds of miles away from Europe and Africa. However, as all of these Portuguese ships began exploring, some of them did get carried west, and something unique was discovered in the process. If a ship goes west, I'm talking 800,000 miles or 1,500 kilometers, there is a flow, the southwest westerlies, that take you back towards Europe. This meant that a ship could take the currents down the African coast, and instead of trying to retrace their routes and just fighting the winds and currents back up the coast, they could sail out into the ocean and find the southwest westerlies, which would take you northeast back to Europe. Thus, the Portuguese ships could do a big circle on these journeys down the African continent. They'd go down the coast, then head west into the ocean and loop back up, even going north of the Azores, and get carried right back to Portugal. I hope this has made sense. No matter, this was a huge discovery. It is crucial to the understanding of the winds in the age of sail, and will be critical for emerging maritime nations such as Portugal. When all is said and done, the Portuguese possessed the knowledge of how ships could travel down the African coast and return safely to Europe. This will revolutionize trade opportunities with the sub-Saharan regions of Africa. By the way, I have put a map of how the Volta do Mar works on the website explorerspodcast.com if you want to see a visual of it all. I also want to note that the discovery of the Volta do Mar is not something that happened overnight. This was the kind of thing that was uncovered over many decades. And to be honest, there's no real person or date that I can attribute it to. Throughout the 1400s, Portuguese mariners will be adding to their knowledge of the oceans and currents and winds, and the Volta do Mar will be perfected over the course of Henry's life and beyond. So Henry's captains were pushing further down the African coast. Contact with the native people was inevitable and the Portuguese were gaining more and more experience and more and more knowledge about Africa and the Atlantic with each new expedition. So you would think it was time to push even further south, correct? Ah, but let's remember, Henry was a multifaceted guy with lots of interests and obsessions. He loved money and finding cool new places and stuff, but more than anything, he loved to poke the Islamic bear. 
Again, Henry and many others in Portugal and Europe detested Islam. The victory at Ceuta in 1415 was a defining moment for Henry, even if holding the fortress was now a financial albatross on Portugal. Well, for years and years, Henry had tried to get his father to go crusading against the Moors, but King John was now dead and Edward ruled. Henry immediately went about prodding his brother about an African campaign. Well, Edward and his advisors were reluctant to get dragged in such an affair. But Henry was nothing if not persistent, and when conditions were ripe, he laid out a proposal to his brother. Henry argued that holding Ceuta and Morocco was not enough for Portugal, and he was right. The fortress was basically doing nothing as it was simply isolated from the rest of the region. Henry said what was needed was a new campaign to take control of all the key cities of northern Morocco, including Tangier. Henry pointed out that the Sultanate of Morocco was politically divided. The young sultan had just come of age, and the unpopular regent, Abu Zakaria Yahya al-Watisi, had refused to yield power to the sultan. The lords and leaders of the kingdom were divided and in chaos. Henry argued that he would raise an army of upwards of 15,000 men and capture several key ports, including Tangier. The prince would find an ally for this endeavor in his younger brother, Ferdinand, who was eager to increase his own wealth and influence in the kingdom. Well, outside of those two, virtually no one really wanted an African campaign. But Henry and Ferdinand would persist and even talk about taking their military orders and going to Castile to fight the Moors in Granada in the service of the Castilian crown. Such a thought appalled King Edward's wife, Queen Eleanor of Aragon, and she would encourage her brother to authorize the expedition. Edward would finally sign on to the idea after Henry, who had no wife or children, agreed to adopt Edward's younger son, named Infante Ferdinand, as his sole heir. And with that, the 1437 Moroccan campaign was underway, with Prince Henry in command. Now, before we talk about the Moroccan campaign, I do want to mention something about Henry and his campaign against Islam, and that is Prester John. Yes, Prester John is back, and he is as elusive as ever. For those who don't know the story of Prester John, he was a legendary Christian king who ruled a land in the Orient. Some believe Prester John's kingdom was near China or India. This fanciful tale enthralled European Christians, who loved to believe that Christians had carved out this amazing kingdom amongst a bunch of pagans. Well, as Europeans, such as Marco Polo, went east, they found no evidence of Prester John's kingdom, and thus his story would get shifted from Asia to Africa. In Henry's time, many believed Prester John's kingdom could be found in Ethiopia. As for Henry, he very much believed that Prester John's kingdom existed, and so one of the prince's dreams was to not just find that kingdom, but to link up with it and forge this mighty Christian army that would sweep the Muslims out of Africa and the Holy Land. Today we may see this sort of thing as silly, but this was deadly serious stuff to men like Henry. Nothing was more important than beating back Islam. So to Henry, this move into Morocco was the first step in his desire to not just conquer the region, but to find and unite Portugal and Prester John's realm in a holy war. So that is enough about Prester John for now. He will pop up again in this series, but that is it for today. Back to the 1437 Moroccan campaign. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Henry's plan was to land his force at Ceuta and then march overland toward Tangier, roughly 25 miles or 40 kilometers. 
Now, the first major issue that befell the expedition was there was a decided lack of enthusiasm for the venture in Portugal. Money and men were simply not forthcoming from the crown, the nobility, or the common people. This meant that the army that would land in Africa would consist of only about six to 7,000 men, less than half of what Henry had envisioned. One breakdown said that there were 3,000 knights, 2,000 infantry, and 1,000 archers. Now, I do want to note that it's possible that there were more men available, but due to a lack of naval transports, they did not participate in the expedition. No matter what happened, the campaign proceeded, the roughly 7,000-man army reaching Ceuta on August 27, 1437. They then marched west, directly for Tangier, which they would reach on September 13th. Now, King Edward had his misgivings about this campaign, and he wanted his brother to abandon it quickly if things didn't go well. To this end, he ordered Henry to take Tangier within a week upon arriving to prevent the Moors from rallying their divided factions. Also, Edward said Henry should make sure that his camp was on the ocean, so if an evacuation was necessary, the army could be loaded onto the Portuguese ships waiting offshore. Well, Henry would do neither of these things. He may or may not have made a foray against the city immediately upon arriving, but if he did, it failed. Instead, he began to construct a fortified siege camp on a hill west of Tangier. The walls that he built encircled the camp, but they did not extend down to the beach. Some believe Henry did this so his men wouldn't be tempted to head off to the ships if things went badly. Ultimately, it would prove to be a poor decision. Now, in Tangier, the local ruler was Salah ibn Salah, who had lost Ceuta 22 years earlier to Henry and his father. The man was determined not to let history repeat itself. As for Salah ibn Salah's army, I have read that he had somewhere around 7,000 men. Amongst his troops were some veteran archers from Granada. The force was roughly equal to Henry's army, but the Portuguese would have likely been better armed and more experienced. Another important point, the slow pace of Henry's army allowed the Moroccans to prepare for the siege. They reinforced weak spots on the city walls, called in troops from the surrounding area, that sort of thing. Henry, personally leading his men, would launch the first coordinated assault on the city on September 20th, but it was quickly repulsed, primarily due to poor planning. The Portuguese didn't have enough scaling ladders, and many of those that they had were not tall enough. Add to that was the fact that the cannons the Portuguese had weren't powerful enough to do much damage to the walls of the city. Thus, ships would be dispatched back to Ceuta to get heavier artillery. In the meantime, the Moroccan armies were mobilizing far faster than the Portuguese anticipated. In fact, Henry's arrival had managed to unify the Moors, and now units were flooding toward Tangier. A relief army would reach the besieged city at the end of September. After some poking and probing at each other, the two sides would get down to business on October 3rd. The result was the retreat of the relief army. Their spirits buoyed by the victory, Henry and the Portuguese prepared for a second assault on the city. This would happen on October 5th, Henry and his men now supported by larger ladders and several heavy-duty artillery pieces. Despite these upgrades, the attack would be a failure. The Portuguese simply did not have enough men to overwhelm the city's defenders. At this point, Henry should have known that the siege was doomed to fail. He just didn't have the men and resources to take a fortified city. But instead of pulling back, he prepared for yet another assault. But before that could take place, another Moroccan army arrived on October 9th under the command of Abu Zakariah Yahya al-Watasi, the regent no one liked, who was now the guy everyone was rallying around as the Moors hated the Portuguese more than the regent. Reports put this army at more than 100,000, but that's probably an exaggeration. Still, they far outnumbered the Portuguese. The Moorish army did not let the invaders organize their defenses and promptly attacked. They quickly overwhelmed the Portuguese outposts and artillery units and scattered a cavalry attack. 
Attempts by Henry to hold back the Moors failed, and the battle quickly turned into a rout. Henry was unhorsed in the fighting, and according to legend, was only saved due to the heroic efforts of a small group of his guard. About a thousand men would flee to the ships off the coast, but by nightfall, the bulk of the Portuguese army, including Henry, had retreated to the walled camp they had constructed. There, the fighting was desperate, but they managed to hold off multiple Moorish attacks. When all was said and done, the besieging Portuguese army was now completely surrounded by the Moors, no outlet for escape available. So things were not looking good, as the Portuguese had almost no food in the camp, and the Moors had them surrounded and greatly outnumbered. Thus, Henry decided to lead his army on a breakout attempt of the camp and make a run for the ships. This plot was, however, revealed to the Moors, who deployed units to prevent such an attempt. Within days, the horses were being eaten and hunger began to take hold. The Moors made a few attacks on the palisade, but by October 13th, a truce was struck between the two sides and the fighting would cease. A treaty would be signed on October 17th. The Portuguese would get to walk away and board their ships. They would have to leave their weapons, artillery, horses, and valuables. In return, Portugal would hand over Ceuta to the Moors. It was a bitter price for Henry, but worth it. Otherwise, he and the remainder of the army, which numbered around 3,000 or 3,500, would have starved sooner than later. Now, as was custom of the day, important hostages were exchanged to guarantee everyone upheld their end of the deal. I'm not going to go into all those details because they are pretty lengthy, but I want to note that Henry's brother, Ferdinand, would be given to the Moors as insurance that Ceuta would be turned over. And here, the story gets tragic. And that's because after the Portuguese skittered away in defeat, Henry would sail to Ceuta and brood over his humiliating loss. You would think, okay, life goes on. Ceuta is a money pit anyhow. Just hand it over, get my brother back, right? Well, no. Henry hated the idea of giving up Ceuta. Hated it. It would be the ultimate humiliation to have to surrender the city. It would be a sign of failure, a sign of weakness, a sign that Islam had bested Christianity. Thus, Henry argued that the treaty, which he had negotiated, should be ignored, basically on a technicality. He believed that his brother could be released in an alternative fashion, perhaps a cash buy, or the release of Moorish prisoners held by Castile. There was even a proposal to raise an army of 20,000-plus men and invade Morocco again, which was not going to happen. Well, the king of Portugal, Edward, after a lot of consideration, decided to do the swap, Ceuta for his brother, Ferdinand. But then, in September of 1438, the king would die after catching the plague, just like his mother and father had done. This meant a lot of drama in Portugal. Edward's six-year-old son, Afonso V, took the throne. His mother, Eleanor of Aragon, became regent. Eleanor, however, as she was a foreigner, was not popular. Portugal would nearly be driven to civil war in the coming months as various sides jockeyed for power. In the end, Eleanor was replaced as regent by Henry's older brother, Peter. Henry backed his brother in the power play. Now, all of this political intrigue would cause the status of Prince Ferdinand to remain in limbo while in captivity with the Moors. This all must have driven Ferdinand crazy, as he had never expected to languish in a Moorish prison. Well, Ferdinand was in for some bad news. Henry balked at handing over Ceuta, always looking for some other solution to the problem. And within Portugal, politics would continually delay any deal getting done. Many people equated giving up Ceuta as caving to Islam. Finding a consensus as to what to do amongst the ruling nobles and the crown grew more and more difficult with each passing year. When negotiations broke down, Ferdinand, who had been treated well by the Moors, would progressively get his accommodations downgraded, eventually just being treated as a common prisoner. There is some speculation that the Moors didn't really want Ceuta, and made completing such a deal difficult, as a Portuguese presence in North Africa was a great unifying force 
amongst the various lords that the Sultan made. No matter, the years would stretch on, and Ferdinand would eventually get placed in isolation after an escape attempt was uncovered. And then in 1443, he would get sick and die at the age of 40. His naked and disemboweled corpse was hung from the battlements of Fez. Ferdinand would acquire the moniker of the Holy Prince after his death, and a sort of saintly cult would emerge around the man. Ferdinand was portrayed as an intensely holy man who had volunteered to be the Moor's prisoner, and had begged Henry not to give up Ceuta even for his own life. There were even miracles associated with Ferdinand. Now, all of this would be encouraged by Henry and the Portuguese crown. It was, after all, a way better narrative than I sacrificed my brother's life for a money-pit African port. The debacle that we now call the Battle of Tangier would do several things. First, it would keep Henry's attention squarely on North Africa and Portugal for several years. There would be no exploration in this time. Second, it would effectively put an end to the military aspirations of Henry. There would be no more grand campaigns to throw the Muslims out of Granada or Morocco or wherever. Even if Henry wanted to give this kind of thing another try, he did not have the support of the Portuguese crown or nobility for such an endeavor. Third, going forward the crown, and when I say the crown, I'm referring to the regent, Peter, Henry's older brother, the crown was supportive of Henry's naval endeavors. Some believe that Peter gave his support in exchange for Henry's backing during the regency dispute after Edward's death. The final thing this did was to put a stain on Henry's reputation. Up until now, he had mostly done successful, high-profile stuff. But Tangier was a catastrophe on multiple levels. The Moors had absolutely drove the Portuguese in combat, and Henry had been outclassed as a commander. And the death of his brother was a monumental embarrassment to the prince and the Portuguese crown. But with Tangier, mostly in the rearview mirror, Henry could get back to sponsoring African exploration. These would begin in the early 1440s, and not a lot is known about these expeditions. Oftentimes it's just a date and location, maybe the name of a captain or two, but not much more. Here are some of those stories. The first major success would be in 1441, when Nuno Tristal reached Cape Blanco, today known as Rasnu Wadibu. This is roughly 450 miles, or 710 kilometers, down the West African coast. Today, Cape Blanco marks the borders between the nations of Mauritania and Western Sahara. Tristal was a knight of Henry's household, and he captained one of the first prototypes of the Latin rig caravels, which we'll talk about in our next episode. Sailing separately, but at the same time, was Anton Gonsalves. Gonsalves didn't reach Cape Blanco, but he went specifically to hunt monk seals along the coast to the north of it. In addition to this, he would capture some of the native people he encountered. And this would become another business opportunity, as the Portuguese would land, grab some hostages, and then swap them for gold dust, slaves, and other items. In 1442, Diego Alfonso, another of Henry's captains, would round Cape Blanco and sail into a large bay. Here Alfonso would erect a large wooden cross on the beach, claiming the lands for Portugal and Christ. This was the forerunner to the Padro, which we discussed in some earlier episodes, such as the one on Diego Cao, who had also explored the West African coast. A Padro was a large symbol, usually in the shape of a cross, that the Portuguese would put up, a way to mark the lands for their nation. Most Padros would be of stone and have all sorts of information carved into them. Some still exist to this day. So after Cape Blanco, the African coast changes dramatically. There are a lot of coastal islands, strong tides, and shoals. This makes the waters more difficult to navigate. And I also want to add that travel down the coast was dangerous due to the lack of water. Again, we're sailing alongside a thousand miles of desert. The Portuguese simply didn't know where to find fresh water. 1443 would bring a couple of important moments. First, another of Henry's captains would continue past Cape Blanco and reach the Bay of Arguin. 
There are several heavily populated islands in the bay, and the fishing here is outstanding. Arguin is going to be a key location going forward. Now, the other thing about 1443 that is important was Henry's growing grip on the commerce down the African coast. As we have discussed, through various laws and decrees, he had a monopoly on the trade south of Cape Bojador. This was reaffirmed at this time. Henry even got the crown to surrender its one-fifth share of any profits from these voyages, arguing that outfitting expeditions to the area was expensive, which was true. But the amazing thing was that Henry now had a total chokehold on trade to the area. If you wanted to go on a trading jaunt to the south, you had to have a license from him. In 1444, yet another Portuguese expedition, this led by Denis Diaz, would reach the Senegal River. This was a big deal for several reasons. First, it effectively marks the end of the Sahara Desert. Going onward was Black Africa, as it was known to the Portuguese. Here was the land that they had only heard about from Arab caravans, the land of gold and slaves and ivory. This meant that Henry had gotten around the Saharan caravan trade routes, and it will prove to be a big deal. The second reason this is important is that the Senegal will be the first of many rivers that will allow the Portuguese to travel into the interior of Africa. This will open up even more trading opportunities. Now, regarding encounters with the natives along the coast, to this point, the Portuguese had not really tried to establish good relations. To the Portuguese adventurers, these people were just pagans or Muslims. This meant that things often turned violent. The weapons of the native people were just no match for European steel swords and armor. And as we have heard earlier, the Portuguese, when they didn't find gold, often turned to taking hostages as a way to make money, or to slave trading. Either way, it meant relations between the natives and the Portuguese were not good. I want to note that Portuguese merchants were interested in trading, but they were frustrated by the region's nomadic people. These people had no ports, no major cities, at least that the Portuguese could determine. It's hard to trade with someone if you don't know where they will be and when. When the Portuguese did manage to trade, they got gold, animal skins, dates, ostrich eggs, and rare resins and oils. But trade was the exception, not the rule. And at this point, the reaching of the Senegal River and Sub-Saharan Africa is where I will finish up for today. Prince Henry was about 50 years old at this time. He had been chastened by his losses in North Africa, but his captains were about to pull the veil back on an entirely new area to explore and exploit. So next time, we will look at this emerging new market, as well as talk about the maritime innovations of Portuguese mariners, including the development of the caravel, which will revolutionize ocean sailing and exploration. So that is it for today. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please take care, and I will see you next time. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.